Hey, everybody, you are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. So a woman who may otherwise feel that she can do more in her career decides not to because she doesn't want to deal with all of the hassles, all of these barriers, all of the, all these things that men don't face. And that's kind of the goal of all of it, right? Is just to get us to acquiesce, go away quietly, stay in your place, don't compete with men for their roles. You know, they perceive them as their roles, right? Do not acquiesce, right? Because then we become part of the problem. And I'm not saying we have to be confrontational or rude or any of those things, but we have to be persistent and we have to be resilient. Don't make yourself smaller. Hey everybody, I'm excited for you to join me today because today is going to be a podcast that's centered on topics that are very, very near and dear to my heart. I am going to be interviewing Dr. Amy Deal and she is an award-winning information technology leader. So this is very relevant in this day and age. She is the Chief Information Officer at Wilson College, which is in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And she is also a gender equity researcher, speaker, and consultant. And everyone knows that if it's one thing I'm banging on about all the time, it's gender equity and the lack thereof. So she is also the author of a book that just came out last week called Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. Her work has been published in many places, um, a lot of scholarly journals, uh, book chapters and popular presses are, you know, publishing her work, including the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and my personal favorite, Ms. Magazine. And I'm going to ask her about some of the articles she's recently written because they are super relevant. So welcome, Amy. Um, congratulations on your book. Before we get into it, um, thank you for coming. But And we'll, we'll circle back on this at the end of the podcast, but where can people get this book? Oh, yeah. So this book is available at all the major online resellers, but the Easiest way to find the links to the book, to order the book, is at my website, which is my name, amy-deal, D-I-E-H-L dot com. Yeah, so there's a page about the book and with all of the, the major order links. And that link will take you to where to buy the book. Yes, exactly. Yep. Okay, so... After this interview, you're going to definitely want to buy the book because you're going to know why you want to buy the book. But let's just get to it now. So, Amy, you've been very busy. You seem to have a lots of specialties with the information technology as well as being kind of a researcher on gender equity. So let me ask you, can you just give us a biography of how did you get to to be where you are today? <laughs> how did this, how did Amy deal evolve? Yeah, that, I love this question. I'll start back at college. <laughs> I promise this won't be a long biography, but I do want to start at college. No, it's important to understand the the line of your development because I think our my listeners are always really interested in understanding, especially women. Like, how do we? How do you get to where you're at, and how did you make this into a profession? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start with my mother. <laughs> I have I have a, a mother who stayed home with me when I was um, and my brothers when we were young, but then she went back to work, and I watched her having had a, a long. She had a gap, you know, this probably 10 year gap in her employment. And she started as a, um, in like a clerical role. And I watched her when I was a teenager, take a clerical role and make it into a professional role. And she was not getting professional pay, <laughs> mind you, but she was in this professional role. And she eventually transferred organizations into a role where it, the pay was better. And it was a role that was a, in a, um, a leader capacity. So I watched her do that. I watched her be a, a, a mother who had a three kids at home and a job outside of the home. And uh, I watched her juggle that all. And and what, was your dad at home with you at that time? Was he supportive of her career goals? Yes, he was supportive. He was working full time um, too. So he was, you know, he wasn't saying we shouldn't do that. No, no, no. He was completely supportive. You know, I think having the the second income was was helpful. We had a lot of family that lived around us. So my mother didn't have to hire, like take us to... Um, daycare or anything or pay the large childcare costs because we had my grandparents were like right next door. Right. And so we were lucky in that regard. Um, but anyway, my point was, I was, I watched my mother and I, she was the first in her um, family, the first and only actually of eight siblings to go to college. And so the expectation on me was, of course, I would go to college. And then she instilled a love of learning in me. 
so I went to college and um, I majored in computer science, which is very male dominated. Yes. And I had, I don't even recall having a female professor in computer science. Mm. Um, I certainly in gen eds and stuff, I had female professors, but when I was in college, I didn't necessarily feel any barriers related to being a woman. I did well in my courses. I got all A's. I, I was adept, you know, at, at mathematics and computer science. And so a month after that, I had gotten an internship and a, my first full-time job um, after college. And there I had, um, I was working as like a software engineer, mostly men in my department. But I had two female bosses, one for the internship and then one for the, the full-time job. And I had two female bosses who were in charge of the, um, the, the, the software engineers. And so that was like really formative for me to see that, hey, I can only not only be a software engineer, but I could be like a manager of the engineers. Right. I could be like yeah. a leader, right? And one of these two women had a master's of business administration and so degree. And so I thought, well, that's what I need to do. I need to go get one of those degrees. <laughs> and so I did that. Um, I transferred then organizations. And my, in my new organization, which was higher ed, I was working with mostly men. And again, for the first several years, I really didn't think about uh, being held back because I was a woman. But after a while, I was moving up in the organization. And after a while, I started noticing some strange things. And one of the things that I, the story that I like to tell is I learned to lead by watching the men around me. And I would watch them be authoritative when they needed to make a decision. They would say, we're just going to do this. And the team would follow and they would have no problem with that. I found when I acted in the same way, was very authoritative with a decision and just said, we're going to do X. Um, the team, I lost points with my team. And I thought, what is going on here? I'm just copying what these men are doing. I don't understand. <laughs> so I ended up starting a PhD program in administration and leadership was the topic of the program, the field of the program. And I used that that time um, when I was in that program to start researching what were barriers that women in leadership were facing? Like what, like I used the time to do like a literature review. Right. Because I wanted to understand what was going on in my own experience. Right. Like yeah. I, then I was, by that point I was like starting to notice things. Things were different for me than they were for, for the men. And it wasn't overt, right? It was, no, no. It, was it was palpable, but it wasn't like in your face. Like it's right. kind of, very insidiously subtle. Yes, yes. And and then I would think back, see, once I started studying it, I would think back to things that had happened earlier in my career, and I'd be like, oh, this wasn't happening to the men. And one of the examples is there was a, I write about this in the book a little bit, there was a an administrative assistant, a woman, who had been there for a long, long time, and she was like my boss's, boss's, like, admin assistant. Right. She, I remember it was, it came to the time where they had to order new computers for everybody. And I had the oldest computer and it was, you know, you have the oldest computer, you get the, you get yours replaced. Well, she refused to replace my computer. <laughs> and why? <laughs> yeah, the men said to me, cause they, they, they started to notice this. They noticed the thing about the computer and they noticed that she was putting up roadblocks to me. Like I would go and ask her for things to do my job and she would put up roadblocks in front of me. And the men, my male colleagues started to notice this. And they asked me one day, one of my colleagues said to me, Amy, what did you do to her? Like as if I had done or said, um, said something to this woman that I was, you know, tasked to work with. And I'm like, I don't know. I just. Was she an older woman? Yeah, she was. She was older. She had been there for 20 or 25 years by the time I had started. I was young when I started. And, you know, through my research, I came to realize, oh, this is more like this is what we would call queen bee behavior. Right. or um, female hostility and stuff. But at the time, I didn't recognize that, right? When that was happening, I thought I was doing something wrong. I didn't realize that she was probably feeling insecure. Here's this young woman who's in a, um, you know, this professional role who, you know. She was living in Don Draper land yes. from <laughs> Mad Men. <laughs> she still thought women just needed to play their support roles and, you know, shut up and yeah. use old computers because yeah. it was all about supporting the men. Yeah, that's very anachronistic thinking. But the problem with that is it was uh, not good for your career, right? Or your ability to do your job. Yeah, it just impacted my ability to do my job. Fortunately, she didn't have a lot of, she was an admin assistant and didn't have a lot of say over whether I got promoted or not, but but she did stymie me from being able to like just get my daily work done. 
but anyway, so so as I so my to continue my story, I'm in my PhD program, and I um, I ended up doing a dissertation where I um, interviewed women leaders in higher education about their experiences with adversity, which was very very insightful. Um, and as part of the questions I asked them, I asked them about the barriers that they had felt that they had encountered that were impacted by their or caused by their gender. So I wrote up my findings in my dissertation. And after that, I graduated with my PhD. I was now a doctor. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what I could do next. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to write a, write a book chapter. And after I wrote this book chapter based on my dissertation, I had the opportunity to go to a conference that was meant to advance research on women in leadership. And it was there I met my co-author, Dr. Leanne Dubinsky. And she had done, she had recently graduated from a PhD program also. And she had looked at female leaders in faith-based nonprofits. Hmm. At the conference, we started talking and we realized that our women participants were really dealing with very, very, very similar things. So higher ed tends to be thought of as liberal, progressive. Religion tends to be thought of as very conservative. And they are, they're kind of polar opposites in terms of industries or fields. Mm-hmm. But yet the women were dealing with very similar things. And it led us to the conclusion that it wasn't about the industry or the field or even not necessarily the position, but it was about being a woman, a woman in leadership, a woman at work. Um, and that what we found that this is like nine years ago now that I met my co-author in the, in the intervening years since, as we've done all this research, the, the conclusion we've came to, we've come to is that no woman is immune to uh, gender bias in the workplace. Um, and maybe in society, um, we fo- we happen to focus on the workplace. Whether you're privileged or whether you're not privileged, you're likely, you're going to un- unfortunately encounter it at some point. And so to write the book, um, you know, after we done all, we, Dr. Dubinsky and I, we, you know, we had combined our research. We had surfaced as many barriers as we could. We teamed up with two additional um, researchers, Dr. Amber Stevenson and Dr. David Wong. They are quantitative researchers, and we teamed up with them to create a scale. And the purpose of the scale was to measure gender bias. So the name of the scale is called um, the Gender Bias Scale for Women Leaders. And it's to give organizations a tool to actually measure gender bias. And um, it measures gender bias across 15 15 factors. If you're interested in the scale, all the scale questions are on my website, uh, by the way. Out of that scale development, we identified the six core factors that make up gender bias. And that's what became the, the, the book. The book is based on these six, these, these six core factors, these six core barriers. We call them six class walls. And for the book, we did it. We put, we piled on additional qualitative research on top of what we had done before um, with our dissertation interviews. We had survey inter- uh, research that we had done. We also scoured the internet for public posts, um, uh, Twitter accounts, blog posts, public articles, anywhere that people, women, were describing their experiences with gender bias. And we used all that as a... And this was across all industries. Yes, across all industries. Ages, industries, the whole... uh, So this was a very analytical, data-driven book that isn't just kind of pie in the sky surmising about gender bias. This is actual research. Yes, this is not a book that just pulls out six barriers out of the air, you know. I mean, right. This is data driven. This is data driven, yes. So I want to ask you a couple questions because I do want to get into these six barriers, but before I ask you that, I mean, I could talk about this all day long because I think this is inherent in the reason why women are going to take so long to get ahead. I was talking to someone the other day, you know, we still are making 82 cents on the dollar and it's going to take 135 years for us to ever have an equal playing field. So that's over a century. And I, you know, for me, this is like a really urgent topic. Okay. And I am an old lady. There is no doubt. I am 64. I was working in the eighties. I was working in the nineties. I was a stay-at-home mom, I was married, I was divorced, I was remarried, I was a lawyer, I was a banker, and I'm a wealth manager, I was an entrepreneur. So I've done everything, and I have felt a lot of biases along the way that I've had to contend with that, you know, are just, I've had, now I have to also deal with ageism, Mm -hmm. so that you can add that to the list. And the thing that bothers me is that 
I don't want this to just be a topic in academic spheres, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are an academic and you are writing this book that hopefully everyone will read, not just people in academia. And it will open their eyes and women in particular to realize that this is urgent, okay? If we can't figure this out, we are never going to be able to you know, build our net worth on a very micro level to become economic players that can have, you know, retirement, uh, dignity and retirement. We're all living older to be older now. Women are living five years longer than men statistically. A lot of women are not getting married. Some women are going to have spouses that die. Others are going to get divorced. So, you know, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. So, This isn't just some academic exercise. This is about our real lives, and it's really, really important. I want to ask you, this is kind of a a very big global question, but a lot of people might say, oh, this is just wokeness, you know? Um, This is just a bunch of really academic women, you know, sitting here. Women have more jobs now. They're on boards, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't want to hear that women have any problems. How would you respond to that? And then I want to get into the nitty gritty of the barriers because then that's going to explain why these people are wrong. But I find it really difficult when people kind of, you know, first of all, they use the word woke a lot Mm -hmm. in a negative way. And secondly, somehow women are getting caught up in that, I think, in this nonsense. Like I had literally had someone yesterday in a meeting say to me, oh, I don't know what women are complaining about. Like, everyone can get a job now. What's the big deal? You know? And it's just like, I just kind of threw up my hands and I was like, you know what? I don't even want to have this discussion with you because you're wrong. And, um, you know, you're just wrong all the ways around. So what can we do to make people understand this isn't just some kind of academic exercise by a, a bunch of woke academics? Yeah. So, you know, in the first chapter of the, of our book, in the introduction, I should say, we, we tell the story of Dr. Um, Caitlin Carrico. Do you know who she is? I do not. Okay. Give us a little bit of information on her. Dr. Carrico is a researcher and a biochemist. She's a researcher of um, mRNA, and which if you remember back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we had, you know, COVID strikes. We've got no vaccines. We've got nothing, right? We're just, right. right. We're just out there. We're everybody's scrambling, you know, to find solutions, um, you know, and treatments for COVID. Well, Dr. Carrico actually had been studying this mRNA technology for years at the University of Pennsylvania. And while she was at UPenn, she was not well supported. And in fact, at one point, she was demoted out of her tenure track role. And if you know anything about academia or anything about faculty, when faculty do not get tenure, they often... They may work for another year, but then they leave. It's right. typically what happens. Well, Dr. Crico chose to stay so that she could continue to work on her on her research. And in the book, I tell us some other um, barriers and way and ways that she was kind of held back while she was there. But she eventually she eventually left and she went to um, bio and tech uh, and became a VP. And well, let me step back. While she was at UPenn, she, she published some groundbreaking studies on mRNA technology. And then she went to BioNTech, and then the COVID hits. Well, because right. she had done all of this research and had all this wealth of research, we were primed, right? To, if you, know, you think about the term in terms of how quickly we got to a vaccine from the- Yeah, it was amazing, actually. Yeah, and it was all based on her research, certainly some other researchers, but, you know, her, her have spent years on this technology, knowing that there would eventually be a, a practical um, use for it. Well, the point that I make about, that we make about Dr. Carrico in the book is that she was really like held back at UPenn. Like she could have been doing, she was having trouble getting funding like for her grants and stuff to continue her research. And she was really held back in no small part due to her, her being a woman um, in, in that field. And um, what I think about, when I think about her is she persisted, right? despite the barriers and at no small cost to herself and her family. How many women don't persist, right? Because they can't, like they make very rational choices, you know, to, to quit or to stay where they're at or whatever. I think about the societal progress that we're missing because we're really holding back half of society, half of the brain power, right? And yes, women are earning more degrees than men, 
in higher yeah, education. That's always thrown up to you. Someone said to me, this person yesterday was like, well, women are getting 60% of the college degree. So by definition, the landscape is going to have to change, you know? And it's like, yeah, but college women still are earning less than college men, even if there's more of them and opportunities are still not evenly dispersed. So that isn't anything to hang your hat on. Yeah. And that's a good point to bring up. So that's right, because once they go into the workforce, right? Yeah, all these anachronistic things come yeah, back to play. All these things, and then by the time you get to the top of the hierarchy, the CEO, the C-suite, it's completely male-dominated. It's completely yeah. under male control. And these women, so many women have just been forced out. And what I think is really interesting about what you're talking about is that, you know, we everyone thinks about academia, you know, Wharton, you know, Ivy League schools. Oh, it's a liberal bastion. Actually, it's not, I don't think, for um, professors. I think it's still very much yeah. dominated by men. Oh, yeah. Academia is too, yeah. I still think it's a, you know, it's a haven for a lot mm-hmm. of gender mm-hmm. discrimination. And, you know, I think people like to lump, oh, you know, all these, you know, Ivy League people, they're so liberal. Uh, no, they're not, actually. Maybe they talk, whatever, but they are not practicing it. Yeah. Okay, so look, this is really important stuff, everybody. I'm not even messing around here. Like, I want you all to like, A, buy this book so you're informed. Because one of the reasons I, I want to do all these podcasts is to educate everybody to what the situation really is. And that this isn't just, you know, me, some old feminist, you know, kind of still banging on that drum. Because we have somewhat gone backwards, I feel, as women in the last 30 years, even though 60% of people graduating from college are women. On paper, that looks good, but in reality, I don't think it translates into any real progress in some ways. So, Amy, let's get into the these these six things that you talk about in the book because I think a lot of this is so important, and it's some of it is really psychologically deeply ingrained in our heads as a society, as a world, because of how women's roles have evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. Could you just talk to us about these very important gender biases that you found in your data-driven research? Yes, yes. I'll go through all six. We'll just do a quick, a quick run-through of them. The book breaks the six down into all of their subcomponents, but I'll highlight the main six here. Um, so the first of the six is male privilege. So male privilege is men's inherent advantage caused by workplace cultures in which men are the leaders They control the resources, they set the standards, and they assign women to a second-class status. So male privilege really serves as the bedrock from which all of the other barriers grow. So the male privilege thing, right? People are going to say, oh my God, that doesn't exist anymore. But I want to frame this a little bit. When you talk about this, it sounds to me like this has, male privilege was started a long time ago because- Women couldn't even own property in the 1800s. So uh, by definition, we were nothing more than chattel. And if we did have property and we got married, the man would take over our property, even if it was ours, because we came from a rich family. So the male privilege that you're talking about is that this privilege from historical times forward is framing our institutions. Is that kind of what this means? Yes, that's exactly what this means. Our institutions were formed by men for men, for men's for men's interests and needs, and not for women. And we could talk about all the different institutions, you know, law, government, and higher education, and medicine, and you know, all of them. Um, they were all founded by 
by men. And, when and, and this, this is historical. I mean, it's not like we're, you know, it's not like you're calling men out and saying, you know, all this stuff is about men now. No, this is historical. And like, there's been pushback about changing that, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment. Oh, my God, don't even get me started on that, because that thing has been kicking around forever. And, you know, now some more states are ratifying it, but it's not ever going to get there. You know, women's reproductive rights continually are now getting slammed down, which means you might have to have a baby you don't want and can't afford. So that's going to impact your career development and where even how you fit into any corporation. Mm -hmm. So this is a historical thing, right? You're saying that we are now dealing with these kind of institutions and norms that were created when women really didn't have any role in them. And so by definition, they exist. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, men today, I mean, none of none of our work is about blaming any any individuals, right? Not blaming right. men, not blaming women, certainly. Um, it just is. It just is. It's just the way that the that the institutions were formed. And so when we go into when we go to work, you know, and this was like an eye opening thing for me over my career, right? I'd go to work and I would see these practices that I thought of as just gender neutral. You know, like for example, working long long hours, right? And this expectation that um, somebody who can work long hours has has a spouse or a partner at home that will take care of all of the home and family needs so that they can work long hours. That's like the long hours thing sounds like it's just gender neutral, but it's not. No. Um, so when, when, when all of us go to work, we're going into these organizations that have roles and standards and things that were developed long, long time ago, um, the founding of our institutions. And we've all been the key point here is we've all been socializing to the same system. So it can be hard to see what sometimes that things that look like they're standard or gender neutral actually aren't. No. And I mean, I think that that actually filters into the way people are viewing remote work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know, you know, I, we have this discussion in my own company, but you know, I am a proponent of remote work for people who probably have you know, who have children, because it allows you to be productive without like running around with your, like a chicken with your head cut off because you've got to do all these things and you have these kids. And so I want to see families be flourishing and healthy. And the way that works is if both parents have some more flexibility and making sure that the family is healthy and able to live their lives. Now, there's a whole lot of uh, things going on now where, you know, these companies are saying you have to come in three days a week. And I can almost get my head around that. But, you know, when I hear people and I hear people in my own world saying this a lot, you know, if you're not in every day, you're not working, you're not as productive. And that's bullshit. I mean, pardon my French. It's just bullshit because if you want to look at real productivity, people can be equally, if not more productive, if they're not driving an hour to work and getting ready to go to work and do all this stuff when they could be dealing with their kids, working remotely and getting all their stuff done without adding all this extra stuff on there. And I think it that mentality is really most hurtful to women who for better or worse, are still doing 75% of all the household chores and caregiving, even when they're the primary breadwinner in their houses. So to your point, it's very on the DL, it's on the down low. We don't know it's happening, but it is happening. And the people that are, you know, banging the drum about everybody going back to work usually looks like a white old guy to me. But yep. anyway, yep. I digress. So, <laughs> um, okay. So male privilege, we know why that is. What's the second one? The second one, disproportionate constraints. So women are constrained to act in ways that are supportive of men and they're held to unequal standards compared to men. And we say that disproportionate constraints, these tend to be the most subtle and the most prevalent barriers that happen to women every day. And the one that really is the most prevalent that we found in our research is um, what we call muting women's voices. For example, um, women may be silenced, they may be interrupted in meetings, um, they may be something called heat-peated. Have you ever heard of the term heat-peated, Kimberly? <laughs> well, I have a feeling it's it about a guy taking credit for something I probably said. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's when a woman says something um, and it's ignored, and then a man says the th same thing and everyone loves it. <laughs> right, right. Um, there's another term called bro-appropriate, which is a, a step above heat-peating, and that's when a woman says an idea, a man takes it and then takes active credit for it. 
So the heat eating can be a little bit more subtle and maybe, you know, the man doesn't. I mean, the male ego is so very fragile. So there you go. Not Uh, a man hater, guys. I've been married twice. But, uh, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of fragility here where people have to take credit for stuff that isn't their ideas. But we've heard from, I mean, almost every woman is like, I'm probably not exaggerating, with the disproportionate constraints will say things like, I've had to work twice as hard to succeed, you know, and I'm held to higher standards than my male colleague, you know. We think of things like women, like men being hired on their potential versus women being hired only whenever they've met the, you know. And the- I mean, look, I've been a victim of this myself when I had to recreate my life at 53 because of my disastrous divorce, which anyone who's listening to my podcast is all about, so I won't bore you with that mm-hmm. story. But the reality was I went and got a job uh, as a financial advisor at a big company. And um, on the day that I was hired, another person was hired. He was a younger man. And I had years of legal experience and investment banking experience. And okay, you know, I had a hiatus, but I was in and out of the workforce. And I was paid $15,000 less than him. And I was actually told that my experience really didn't amount to much and that I just had to prove myself all over again as though I had Mm -hmm. kind of a blank page on my resume. And so that was not only sexism, but it was Mm -hmm. ageism. And, you know, I remember saying to somebody, if I'm going to succeed in this job, I'm going to have to be 10 times better than Mm -hmm. all the guys that I work with. I am going to have to literally kick this thing and I have to hit this out of the park because that's the only way. And I'm kind of a tough old broad. So I just went to this and I also was running out of money. So I, I had to get my act together and make some, some money. And I was real. And, you know, I took all my professionalism, all my background and I just, you know, luckily my kids were older, so I didn't have to deal with younger children. So that gave me the opportunity to do this, but it was essential that I do that. And I did do that. And it, you know, I muscled my way to the top of this kind of organization. And it was, um, I, it was not optional for me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whereas other people were getting paid a little bit more or better deals than I was getting for doing less. And it was annoying, but I couldn't let that eat me up inside. And it did bug the hell out of me, but I used it more for motivational purposes than anything, but it was annoying. So this stuff still exists and it's subtle, but -hmm. I was interviewing a woman called Randy Braun the other day who, um, she has a new book out called The New Playbook for Women. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, if people are talking over you in meetings, just don't stop talking, just keep talking (laughs) until they shut up. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like Vice President Camilla Harris when she was, Kamala Harris, excuse me, when she was debating. Then VP Mike Pence, you know, and he kept trying to interrupt her during that VP debate. And she's like, she would just said, I'm speaking. I'm speaking, you know. Yeah. And don't say I'm sorry or I'm not finished because I'm a big, uh, I'm very guilty of often saying, I'm sorry, I'm still speaking. No, just say, hey, I'm still speaking. Like, you know, shut up. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So we've got all that kind of shady business going on. Um, What's the third one? The third one is called insufficient support. So this is women's lack of access to social structures and networks that would help them advance. And it even includes unsupportive leadership. So this unsupportive leadership, leadership happens when leaders ignore women's needs or concerns, trivialize them, or even disbelieve women who report discrimination or harassment. So lack of mentoring, lack of sponsorship fits into this category. Exclusion from, you know, the social events, you know, like the golf outings and the drinking after work. So what about other women? I mean, did you find in your studies that other women are letting the team down by not mentoring the women beneath them or coming up behind them? Or are women trying to mentor people when they are on a more elevated position? Because, you know, you do hear, whether it's true or not, you hear, you know, some women, maybe it's the queen bee thing. I don't know Mm -hmm. what the technical term is, but they aren't as forthcoming for other women coming up and they don't really try to, you know, change policies to help women. They actually hurt them more. And I've also read that, you know, people have suggested that women should find a, a male mentor who can mentor them. And, you know, I think if that's optional, if that's around, that's a good mm-hmm. thing if the person is really interested in helping you succeed and changing the, the landscape for women. But I'm curious, like, ha- did anyone, when they were talking about insufficient support, feel that other women, uh, was that a factor? Like other women could be more supportive, but they weren't. 
Well, when we get to the fifth barrier, which is hostility, that's where uh-huh. the, the queen bee um, behavior um, fits. Got it. Okay, so but, we can put that on hold to that yeah, one, I guess. But but I will say this: yes, there are there are cases, many cases of women who are not supportive of the women coming behind them. But we actually don't believe that to be the um, the majority of women. Um, in fact, there was a study; it was in a research study that was done out of Brazil, and it looked at all these municipalities in Brazil, and if they had a female um, at the top, did the female the the women underneath what was the um, promotional like rates? And what it found is right. like women tended to get more promotions whenever there was a was like a female mayor or whatever the the role was. So we, we don't believe it's the majority of women, but when it happens, it can be very jarring because we expect as women that we're going to support each other, right? Right. Like, I expect that all my female colleagues, like that they, sh- they should get it. We've all, we're all suffering from the same kind of bias and discrimination. So we don't expect to be blocked or harassed by our female colleagues where we might maybe anticipate it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen from the man. So a, a male colleague or boss. Um, so when it happens to us, and it's a it's a woman who doesn't who won't mentor us, or it's a woman that actively blocks us, um, it's just very jarring because it's so unexpected. That's what I would say. There are plenty of women though that that are very willing to mentor and support um, other women. And I, I have found that in you know my career, my early career, when there were a handful of women at the big law firm I worked for, they were very supportive. In fact, you know, really went out of their way to make sure I got put on the mm-hmm. best deals and really tried to do their thing. And I also am a big believer in, you know, women's organizations that I've joined like Chief or Renegade or whatever. They're, you know, we are all mm-hmm. here to support each other and mentor each other because if we don't help each other, no one is going to help us. So we have got to you know, keep the sisterhood alive and keep talking about this and supporting each other because otherwise, you know, this is just going to be the self-perpetuating thing that goes on in perpetuity and we're never going to get out from under this lack of economic progress and not only economic progress, but the ability to have the free will to control our lives as we see fit without judgment and without being told by the law that we can't do it. Okay, so... We're on to the fourth one now. What's the fourth one? Fourth one is devaluation. So devaluation consists of attempts to make women seem unimportant and detract from their authority. So examples are, one of the examples is something we've already talked about. It's being paid less than men for the same work. Um, Another example is being assigned um, or expected to do office housework. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. You know what office housework is, right? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. All, all the tasks, all the things that keep an organization running smoothly but are not recognized, rewarded, or even acknowledged at times, um, you know, like cleaning out the refrigerator or taking the notes in the meeting or even just helping your colleague with a project. So women are expected to do these tasks, and when they say no, they are more, much more likely to experience backlash, whereas a man can say no and just like, okay, he's busy. If the woman says no, well, wait, that's, she should do that because she's, you know, that's her role, whether, no matter what her role is. uh, Right, right. In in the organization. If you're a woman in the room, you're expected to order the lunch or go get the coffee. Yeah. I will never do any of that unless it's just for myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And again, I think that's based on our old fashioned concepts. And I think I mentioned this to you later, you know, I think that we still have these notions that women have a certain role in life. They're supposed to be more nurturing. They're supposed to be more caring. And, you know, they're supposed to do all these things to make everybody feel good about themselves and make it all very comfy, cozy. So order lunch, bring people coffee, be, you know, kind of like the hostess with the mostest, even though you're, you know, the CFO. Um, and, (laughs) And that's insane. You know, that's just crazy. Okay. So... Again, anachronistic thinking. And then the fifth one is? Fifth one is hostility, which we just mentioned. Um, So hostility is active resistance to women's presence in the workplace through overt discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. And the goal is to keep women in their supposed place underneath men in in the gender hierarchy. Either women can have two places if they're either they're at home, they're out of the workplace, or if they're in the workplace, they're underneath the men and playing uh, supportive roles, even if their role is a peer to the men, right? 
Um, They're expected to be in a a supportive place. And like I mentioned, um, this includes female hostility, which we divide into actually two categories in the book, the queen bee behavior, um, which is when a woman who's in an upper level position fails to help or actively harasses a woman in a lower level position. And then the second type that we is a term we coined um, called uh, or a label that we developed called mean girls behavior. And that's when peer, yeah, peer or lower, lower level women um, actively harass or fail to fail to support their their colleagues. And like that's just so not cool. I mean, yeah, the thing know. I just always have to add this about the female hostility is the goal here, again, is not to put the blame on the women. We were all socialized into the same the same male norm, male privilege system. And a hundred percent. These women are just feeling insecure in their own positions. And they're often made to feel insecure. Like if, if one woman loses out, if one woman's in a position, like she's the only one that could be in a, in a, in that top level position. Yeah. Cause like, there's so few and far between. So everyone gets very territorial, but I just remember too. I mean, so this business of like this being a man's world is so inculcated in us. I remember back in 1983 when I started my job at the first big law firm I worked for, all the women back then wore those silk bow ties, including myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a look to look like a man, except you were wearing a silk bow tie and you were a woman. So it was a very male-oriented look. And that was I have no idea why that was the look, but that was the look. And so everyone wore those silk bow ties. I had them in almost every color. Again, I think this is very much in just ingrained in our heads. And some of us are moving forward and some people are just lagging behind. But when I first started working as a financial advisor and I joined a, a, a group that was smaller at the beginning, we've since become an independent advisory with 50 people. But anyway, at the time, there was a woman who was the assistant to the managing partner. And I was a new advisor, but I was an advisor. I was a professional person who was an advisor. And she came into my office one day and said, when me and the other person who was the other administrative assistant, when we're not here, now there were two other male advisors, by the way, one who was younger than me. When we're not able to pick up the phone, I'm having all the calls directed to you so you can pick up the phone for the group. And I looked at her and I said, A, that will never happen because I'm busy and I'm an advisor. You haven't asked the other two who are not women to do that. And, oh, that's right. I practiced law for a long time. So I don't know why, but I'm, I'm thinking there could be a lawsuit in my future. Uh, are you kidding me? Like, how dare you come into, yeah. I was beyond irate and I went and complained and yeah. she was told off. But, you know, this was like a no brainer for her, yeah. right? Yeah. It was like, oh, well, here's the other woman. She should answer the phone. The other two dudes who were sitting there who actually didn't have, in the end, I have had a much bigger book of business and they, they will ever have. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't mean that in any negative way, but I mean, I've worked my butt off. But it was just like, wow, you know, like, I'm sure they didn't even know this ever happened to me. I didn't even really go into it with them, but just really disheartening, you know, and the fact that I had to deal with that, deal with the angst of it, deal with the anger of it. Yeah, it just made me upset. And I'm not the kind of person to just acquiesce because yeah. I'm a fighter and I'm from Pittsburgh and, you know, I will literally throw down with anyone that gets in my way. But, you know, if I were a different person, I might have just like said, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I'll I'll answer the phone. And that would have been not right. Yeah. The thing of it is, is it took your time away from doing your yeah. job either way, right? You said no. And like you said, there's angst to that. Like there's you know, we have to manage our own feelings, right? And our own emotions about when we're constantly diminished and um, we're constantly hurt. I was mad about that for, for a long, I'm still mad about it. And that was like 10 years ago. I mean, I'm still angry that someone right. would have the audacity after all of the things that I did to get that job and the things I was doing in that job and doing a good job of it to come in and kind of just like, because I happen to be a woman, assume that I'm going to answer phones. And it was just, very so, which is why I started the fiscal feminist platform as I as I became more successful as a wealth mm-hmm. manager because this ingrained nonsense has just really bothered me deeply and I'm very passionate about it and like I said I have I work in a, mainly a male environment mm-hmm. a lot of my friends are men because by definition I spend all day around them I like men I've been married twice 
But to me, this injustice is so deep and it just bothers me so much. And mm-hmm. I really, really, really don't understand how we're ever going to overcome it unless we keep talking about it. Yeah. But your, your sixth one was the kind of combination of all these factors together. Yes. And, and then I'd like you to talk about like, how does that affect women's behavior then? Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned the word acquiesce, right? The sixth one is acquiescence. Um, so due to the combined weight of the other barriers, women internalize the obstacles, accept them as valid, and adapt to the limitations. And I'm going to give two examples of um, types of barriers in this category. One is self-silencing, and that's where women keep quiet on workplace sexism overall, or they also keep quiet, and they also sometimes keep quiet on harassment or um, mistreatment that happens to them because they have a very, when they have a very real um, feeling um, that they They might lose their job if people, you know, it's, it's not straightforward that they will actually be accommodated and listened to and believed. And the other aspect I want to bring up about acquiescence is uh, self-limited aspirations. So for self-limited aspirations, what happens is women make a very rational choice to not pursue advancement so a woman who may otherwise, you know, feel that she can do more in her career decides not to because she doesn't want to deal with all of the hassles, all of these barriers, all of the, all these things that men don't face. And that's kind of the goal of all of it, right? Is just to get us to acquiesce, go away quietly, stay in your place, don't compete with men for their roles. You know, they perceive them as their roles, right? And so that becomes then the sixth and final barrier that we that we describe here. My comment on that is do not acquiesce, right? Because then we become part of the problem. And I'm not saying we have to be confrontational or rude or any of those things, but we have to be persistent and we have to be resilient. You know, don't make yourself smaller because we've already been going through that for a billion years. So, you know, it's to your point, Amy, if all the women were able to do their job on an even playing field, not only would society be more productive, there'd be a million new inventions and things going on in the world. And our global economic health is going to be way better. GDP would go up. Everything would go up. I mean, there's no downside to women participating fully in the economy and being treated equally. Right. I think a lot of this comes into, again, people, this is so random and I I want to be respectful of your time, but I was watching this um, documentary on Mary Tyler Moore. I don't, do you know who she was? And so no, Mary yeah. Tyler Moore, Mary <laughs> Tyler Moore show when she lived in Minneapolis, I used to watch that when I was younger and I was always inspired, you know, and to have my own career and all this stuff. But anyway, Mary Tyler Moore herself in this documentary was being interviewed by a guy called, I think his name was Jeffrey Suskind, Suskind. He was a big, he was a guy who used to do um, like talk shows back in the seventies. And she was a working woman and she embraced her working. I mean, she was quite ahead of her time in real life, not just on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, because she had a kid and he was saying to her, well, don't you think that, you know, women really can't be good mothers if they work, you know, they can't. And she totally refuted this. Mm -hmm. But this was in the late seventies, you know? So I think a lot of this still is wrapped up in a woman's place is in the house, nurturing yep. the children, keeping the home fires burning, making sure dinner's on the table when their husband comes home from work. And this is uh, also manifested in the motherhood penalty. Mm-hmm. When you know women have kids, their pay goes down 4%. When men have kids, their pay goes up 6% mm-hmm. because we still believe that men are going to be, where when there's a whole ton of single mothers out there, you know, yep. come on now. So- I want to uh, segue because you've written so many great things that we could be having a five-hour podcast. (laughs) Uh, You wrote this recent article in Fast Company, and um, you show, you say, new research reveals the 30 critiques holding women back from leadership that most men will never hear. And so you obviously did some research again, and you talked to a lot of people in all sorts of institutions and uh, companies, and I was just intrigued by the list of some of them. Age seemed to come up as yes. a big one. Attractiveness, mm-hmm. physical ability. I'm not even sure mm-hmm. what that means. Like if someone's got a disability, that's a, that's a reason to... And would that be different for a man or a woman? Well, we, in the article we write about uh, differences, um, health is another aspect of that. And there was a, an example in the article that we give where a woman talked about um, she had um, ovarian cancer and she was going to be discharged from the National Health Service. And she said, men with prostate cancer do not 
they don't go through like they don't there's no idea that they're going to be discharged from their role because they right. have cancer, you know right so yeah we did see examples of disparities between uh, how women like all of these critiques like they're all identity based critiques right and they all have nothing to do with a woman's ability to do her job or her experience and did you find that pregnancy was a deleterious thing? Because I think people oh, yeah. even, I mean, it, they finally passed this Pregnancy Fairness Act after about 5,000 mm-hmm. years of talking about it. But still, I still think that people, if employers or, you know, an organization thinks someone's going to have a baby or they do have a baby, I don't know. I still think that <clears throat> that's a problem. I don't know if your research bears that out. but Not only when the woman is actually pregnant or has children, just the the concept that she might have children, she might have hypothetical children. And even women that maybe like they go into a job and they will be explicit. Like we don't, I'm not planning, like they'll be explicit about not planning to have kids. There's still this suspicion and this doubt that the women reported that, you know, that they, that was a reason that to they keep- might secretly go get pregnant. Yeah, they might, <laughs> they had potential to, you know? Right. Well, that's that's what happens when you're a woman. You have potential to, yes. um, unless you you know yes. have a hysterectomy or you're old. Um, <laughs> there were some other things on here: uh, body size, attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Do those things? Do you think weigh in more for women? So, if you've got a person who's a man and a woman with kind of similar body sizes, we'll use that as an example. Would that impact the woman more than the man? Were you able to discern that? So just to be clear, for our study, we we only talked to women, okay? And we surfaced these 30 identity-based criticisms or critiques that, that the women were being told or given or were, were, or, or were the basis for subtle bias. So I don't have, like our study wasn't a, um, a, a direct comparison. A comparative one. But there is other research out there about lookism, lookism bi- um, bias. And, you know, that's the, that gets to the attractiveness thing. And um, that suggests that, yes, like women are held to higher standards in terms of their, you know, their attract, certainly attractiveness and having a thin, you know, a, what, you know, the Western ideal is of a, of a um, attractive body. But it actually like the attractiveness thing is very interesting because it worked both, like it worked both ways. Um, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just yeah, like, that's like, true, right? If you were attractive that that gave you an advantage. No, like one of the, one of the quotes that we use, um, and actually, this was—I don't think this was in the Fast Company article, but we had a um, we had a quote from a woman, and we wrote another article about age bias. It just came out last Friday in Harvard. Yeah, Business. I was going to ask you about that one too. And uh, just quickly, there is an article in the Harvard Business Review that Amy and Dr. Zubinsky—I'm mm-hmm. not sure I'm saying her name right—wrote um, called "Women in Leadership Face Ageism at Every Age." Yeah. This article is near and dear to my heart because mm-hmm. um, I do think that ageism is out there. And you, you know, I know in my case, I just want to, I feel forever young, regardless of my age. I feel like I'm still with it. I've got a lot of energy. But so tell us what the lady said. Yeah. So one of the quotes from that in that article, oh, oh I should add, it was also Dr. Amber Stevenson that, that also was co oh, okay. author on both the Fast Company and the Harvard Business Review, just to make sure I acknowledge everybody. Um, but for ageism, um, the ageism article, what we found was that women were too, either perceived as too young to lead or they were perceived as too old to lead. And middle age wasn't quite, quite right either. <laughs> um, so we had one woman that reported that between the ages of 20 and 40, men couldn't get past her appearance. And she was a, she was like a physician and she gave a presentation, a talk in a medical conference. And she mentioned that she was very proud of this talk. And she gets off the stage and her male colleague says to her, oh, you look like a Barbie doll up there. Oh, for God's sake. That was, that was the, like the, the feedback that she got. It wasn't anything about the content of, you know, the very important content, content, the scientific content that she was presenting on or medical content. It's about her looks. And so she, here she's like a, a, you know, an attractive person. And it's like similarly held against her because that's like, that's the. No, they, they can't get by that. Right. They can't right. understand what's coming out of her mouth, which is right. substantively accurate and good. Right. right. Oh, so yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're attractive or unattractive. It's going to be. A, it, Either way you're screwed. Right. <laughs> right. And that was so similar with so many of these, these characteristics. It didn't matter what you were. What, what it really came down to was you're a woman and the women in the workplace and these were being held as um, 
they're red herrings, was what we call them, red herrings for gender bias. Um, well, that was actually pretty obvious. What yeah, that, that was said. obvious, yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder, what was her response to him? So this was survey-based research, but the point she made was like, I was, she said, I was very proud of this presentation, like the content of the presentation, and I was just diminished. You yeah. Know, so I'm just diminished by this colleague's comment about my looks, you know. Yeah, it's... Um, All right. So look, I think what you're doing is a super duper important. And I think everyone needs to buy the book Glass Walls. And I think that everybody needs to check out Amy and she's going to tell us where else you can check her out at. But again, the name of the book is Glass Walls Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. And I guess I want to end on an upbeat note because all is not doom and gloom because- We are all very motivated, industrious women, and we are not going to just, you know, roll over and be second-class citizens for the rest of our lives. What can you say to women to say, okay, here's the information. This is what we have. This is the playing field right now. What words of wisdom do you have for women so that we can start seeing a shift in this? First, I think knowledge is power. So you're providing us with the knowledge, the information. This is not made up. This is data-driven. So you've at least given us the playing field so we know what we're dealing with. But what, after all this research and pondering and thinking, what words do you have? Yeah, a couple things. The first thing is in the book, we don't only, not only do we explain all of the barriers, but we provide strategies and solutions for, at three levels, for leaders, for workplace allies, and for the women themselves. And we really put the onus on fixing the organizational culture and creating gender equitable and inclusive organizational cultures on the leaders. And so in the book, like I said, we, we have got strategies and solutions for all three to make sure that we're hitting no matter where you're at in an organization or if, it's, if gender bias is happening to you, you've got a resource and can find um, some uh, strategies. The thing I would say to women, and this was the thing that I had to learn, was do not, if it happens to you, do not take it personally. Do not consider yourself a personal failure. This happens, unfortunately, it happens to all of us women. We're all in this together. Um, and then secondly, the thing I would add on top of that is you don't have to be, you don't have to like lay down and be a victim to it. Um, understand that I say in the book, or we say in the book, you want to try to make change in your organization. You, you do want to take steps to try to make positive change. But if you're just continuing to hit wall after wall, make sure that you've got alternatives, you know, don't yeah. let one person, one organization stop you from your from your goals. Um, don't be afraid to have other alternatives, other positions, perhaps that you could apply for in your same organization or in an, a different organization or some women go to work for themselves. It's better to get out of a truly toxic situation than to, to stay there and let it ruin your, um, your, your mental and emotional and physical, physical health. So don't take it personally, but also um, have alternatives would be the two yeah. things. Yeah. Keep your options open. There's more than one place to, you know, flourish. And part of it is, you know, uh, making sure that you've structured your life so that you can explore other options. And Mm -hmm. I won't even get into the whole personal finance thing about having an emergency Mm -hmm. fund. But again, that's what I talk about that a lot, because that gives you the option to segue or pivot if, if you, you know, if you don't really like where you're at. And I think this is more important for women than it is for men, because often we have all these things that we're encountering that are not, you know, really great. And if you want to start your own business or whatever it is, um, you want to be able to have the resources to make that. And I make that change. And I agree, you know, you can't take this stuff personally because you'll be sitting around beating yourself up all the time. And, and this is not about us in particular as individuals in many ways. Again, it's just old fashioned thinking that has been inculcated into all of our brains, men, women, you know, it's just part of how history, you read books from back, you know, way back when all of this stuff is kind of ingrained in our heads and we're trying to change it and still, you know, celebrate being women. It doesn't mean that we have to be like men and wear those silly bow ties I used to have to wear. (laughs) You know, you can still be a woman. You can still be um, a woman who, you know, cares about the way she looks and does all those things that women do, but but still be valued as a professional in an equal playing field. Those things are not mutually exclusive, but somehow they've been made to be mutually exclusive. Amy, you're doing very, very important and good work. Ladies, I want you to be inspired by this to understand what the playing field is and then to go out and change it, not only change it in your workplace by negotiating and being a, a, an advocate for yourself, but also on a macro level, 
every vote that you cast has something to do with our rights. So mm-hmm. it's totally up to you. But, you know, we can't be apathetic in the political realm as well. We need to cast our votes, whatever your opinion is, so that you can get your voice heard. So Amy, where else can people find you besides buying the book? Yeah. So I have my website, which I mentioned, amy, A-M-Y-D-I-E-H-L.com. Um, but I'm also on all the social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and even Mastodon. Is it at Amy Deal? Uh, Twitter is at Amy Deal. Um, LinkedIn is Amy Dash Deal. It's like a little bit different each one. Yeah. Instagram, yeah. Instagram is Amy Deal PhD, as is as is Facebook, uh, and Mastodon is at Amy Deal. Um, but if you go to my if you go to my website, it has all the social media. It has all the links. So look, guys, check out Amy. Dr. Amy Deal, she's the real deal, and she is uh, writing and doing really important work for women. So let's support her and let's support each other and make sure that all of us in our sisterhood, you know, don't take each other for granted and know that if we don't help each other, no one else is going to do it. So until next time, thank you guys for joining us today. And I hope you go away feeling informed and inspired. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.